So I'm curious how many of you knew this was coming, since I spent so much time during the Halo 3 run and the Halo 3 room talking about how I wish there was some kind of recovery mechanic. And lo and behold, here's this game where you have health again and health packs. Frankly, I felt tankier in general in this game, and if I might be so bold, that was a good move in my opinion. Because all of a sudden, my first of all, I started enjoying myself, but second of all, my entire playstyle just kind of restructured itself around the fact that I no longer could die in, in less than a second because of some screw-up. It made the whole experience substantially more enjoyable for me. Now, you can call me a scrub, that's okay, but the whole point is, if I screw up, then I screw up but I have the opportunity to try and recover from that screw-up. I can tuck and roll, so to speak, rather than just bashing my head on the pavement and that's the end of that and I get to reload the save. I'm not going to say that this game was perfect, but that was a huge quality of life change. In fact, it's funny to me because I felt substantially stronger in gameplay in this game than I did in the previous three as random, uh, you know, soldier guy versus the Master Chief. Uh, anyways... <laughs> At first, I was going to comment on how, oh, well, they totally have changed things to make you feel weaker, but they didn't. At first, I was going to comment that the melee abilities seem to be weaker, but they're kind of not. It was still one or two shotting just about everything, especially when you get a bladed weapon. The only noticeable difference in terms of gameplay for me versus playing as Master Chief, other than the obvious you know recovery health thing, is the fact that Guns now have a very noticeable recoil, which actually took me not, not to put... It took me a little bit of time to accommodate because I wasn't used to it for the last three games, but it was like, okay, I, I can do that. And that's about it. That's about the biggest change right there. Not a big change. But gameplay-wise, I want to talk about this a little bit. Most of the gameplay of this game is the same as the other ones, so I don't have much to share there. Gun design, enemy AI design, and counter design. The missions are certainly very interesting. They're not quite as top-notch as some of the Halo 3 missions, but nevertheless, there were some legitimately good missions in this game, and there were some good set pieces they designed. For example, when we were defending the crashed bird, there are many, many missile ro ro launchers rockets? Missile rocket launchers? And miniguns all over the place, which we can then use to be like and actually, you know, deal with the enemy encounters. So that's decent. Um, there's also an entire section, which is basically the sniper section, where we start off with qu plenty of people in large perches who are also enemy snipers, and we have nice long approaches before we actually have to get to the enemy. Designing the arena around the encounter at mind. It's some basic level design stuff, but it is still good, and it still is deserving of note. I want to talk about the overworld, the exploration sequence. Now, the first thing I want to comment on is how I feel like it was well designed, but stretched out too much. I talked about this on stream, but to repeat myself a little bit. The idea of the overworld hub thing, I'm actually completely with. Let me begin by saying that, though I have issues with this game, I want this to be a Mega Man 1. A, an experiment that they then take and polish and refine to make a truly great game. I think there's bones of a good game here. Uh, let me right, walk that back. I think there's bones of a great game here, because I think this is a good game. I enjoyed myself. In fact, make of this what you will, this is the first Halo game I've played that hasn't frustrated me. Uh, I've talked about the Grand Theft Auto thing. You remember? There's always those points which, ah, you know, when it comes to Grand Theft Auto. Except for that one person who loves the Zero Missions, which is awesome. This is the first game where there was no moment where I was just like, ah, throughout the course of the game. Even the one section where I was taking out the tank was only frustrating because of a unique situation of ammo and checkpoints. And even that was was very minor compared to the problems I have with all three previous ones. 
But that open world concept, the hub concept, I was thinking of other games that have hubs like that. You know, hub mission design. Or what I mean by that is there's the hub and then there's the missions and you run around and you select them. You can do them in, in you know, a rough order. It, it, you don't have to do them completely linearly, but generally speaking, there is still a guided tour you're supposed to be taking and after certain points you, you know, can't go back to do other things or certain areas lock or unlock or whatever. So, I do like that. I can think of other games that do that properly, but all the games that do hub worlds best, they really fill the hub world with something to do. Or they make the hub world substantially smaller. Or both. I'm going to use what I consider to be the er example of the hub world game design, Mario 64. Yes, I'm comparing Mario to Halo. What? Mario 64 has a very small hub world. In many cases, it is literally seconds to go from one mission to another. But they also bother to add things to that hub world. There are specific stars you can get, there's events you can do, there's unlocks, there's different paths. It's not much. It's not super amazing, but there is content there. Now you're probably thinking, well, this game has content in the overworld. I'm not sure I agree, because there are two major things from a purely gameplay perspective that the overworld fills in this one. One, you get the pseudo-random encounters with the enemies. Okay. There's not much to those, and I don't have much to say about them. Although, again, it is nice to not have to die in a millisecond just because I screwed up. And point two is the going to get the audio logs. I, I was struggling to explain this on stream because it really feels to me like two separate teams worked on the audio story and the main story, right? And, and they just, they wanted, they, they had this other team and this other story idea and they wanted to do this other story idea. You're probably expecting me to talk about Dante's Inferno at this point, but I'm not going to since we're not talking about story yet. So we'll talk about that later. But for now, <laughs> It felt like they had this extra toy, and they just wanted to jam it in there, and they just started doing the Terminals thing with Halo 3, so they're like, okay, let's just jam that in there. And considering the fact that this game was originally supposed to be Halo Chronicles, I'm being slightly facetious there, but by all intents and purposes, from what I have uh, uncovered in my own brief research, the, the exact team that was working on this game were the people who were working on Halo Chronicles, and I would bet you money, thanks to how game design works, that they baked a lot of that information and ideas into ODST if I'm saying that correctly. Because <laughs> that, that Halo movie, which never happened, which kind of sucks, I think Peter Jackson could have made something of that, but whatever. Anyways. So, we have this other thing that just, it doesn't fit. It's good. I liked the audio logs, I liked the story it told, but it was another story, completely disconnected from the story we were telling. Now that's fine, but it you can see why it doesn't really flesh out the hub world for me all that much, especially from a gameplay perspective, because all that boils down to is either looking at the map and checking, or following the path that Virgil is laying out and then trying to interact with the right thing. It also kind of encourages you to leave the HUD mode on the entire time to make sure you scan things and catch things, which is a nice feature, but at the same point completely destroys the atmosphere. I will also say that the, the there was less interesting set pieces, but there were still some good set pieces in the mission design. Probably my favorite overall section, bar bar none, is when we were in the in the jeep riding around in the desert area in the in the wildlife preserve. That mission, I believe, it was the second mission I did. I don't remember. Please forgive me. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> they did a lot of things right with that mission. A lot of enemies, a lot of variety, a lot of tools, a lot of options. Good stuff. Probably the best mission in the game, in my opinion. The last mission had some issues, and I also noticed the no music problem came back a little bit in this game. For those of you not familiar with the concept, no music, 
contrarily enough, doesn't mean a section of game where there is no music playing. It means a section of game where no music is playing and there's, or excuse me, a section of fiction, because this can apply to shows or movies as well, where there's no music playing and there probably should be. Absence of music can be used very effectively. Star Trek does this all the time. You know, plenty of video games have silence as a narrative tool. But in my opinion, in this game, there were just empty branches of nothing where there could have been some kind of ambiance. Uh, to use Halo 3 as an example, there's this kind of drum beat, you know, low pulse thing when you're going through flood sections. Not really music, just this ambiance beat. Or maybe when you're uh, building up to a major escalation section, there's this kind of rapid fire, almost techno thing going on out of the background. You know, just going on. And that then leads into the actual song. In this game, those sections were absent, so it was just cool song and then dead silence. And it kept pulling me out of the narrative completely, to the point where I was just like, oh, okay. <sighs> but I think this could have been a truly great game if it had the time and attention it needed, instead of being thrown together as a Gaiden game in the gap before they work on the next game. Since the Chronicles thing fell through and they had a little bit of time, so let's make a quick two, three hour campaign. For what it is, I did enjoy this, but I suppose this is the time to start talking about the narrative. I already mentioned the Dante's Inferno thing, and I don't have anything else to say about that. It's fairly self-apparent. I mean, we've got the woman who is greed, and then we've got the dude who is wroth, and he's shooting all the other people, and blah, blah, blah. It's fairly self-obvious. They even call the audio log circles, for God's sakes. I don't have much to say about that. What I do have to say is something that I found far more interesting, and I'm not even sure it was intentional or not. What do you do if the world is ending around you? How do you react? No, don't actually answer. I mean, you can answer in the comments if you want to, but realistically speaking, you probably do not know the answer to that question. Because, well, in my experience, you don't really know unless you've already been through something horrifically tra tragic or traumatizing, at which point you have some kind of basis to judge. Otherwise, all you can do is say what you'd like to say. You know, it would be nice if I would react this way or I would want to react this way. But otherwise, we don't really know how we're going to react until we're actually in the moment, right? I bring this up because that's what I took out of this. I wrote some, some quick notes down here. Tom, he was the used, used house salesman or the real estate salesman. Total denial. Complete, utter unacceptance. No, this, this has to fit into my mindset. I'm not, this doesn't fit in my mindset, so it has to fit into my mindset. So I'm just going to make it fit into my mindset. And I talk about houses and everything's completely normal. Utter and complete disconnect. Then we have Mike. Now, he's the guy who actually is with it. Now, he's cool. But you'll notice that he basically started doing this because he met an attractive girl that he wanted to, to date or whatever. I mean, she's 19. I shouldn't call her a girl. An attractive woman that he wanted to date. And so he was willing to undergo this ridiculousness to, to you know, be with her. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, that's horrible, Lore. Eh, no. It's human. What that is, is that is someone who is, who is coping with the trauma by connecting with someone. Anyone. In this case, it was a clear romantic connection, but it was a connection regardless, effectively latching on to someone else, anyone else, even a complete stranger, just to try and have something to help buoy him, to help him get through this. And for the record, I hope Sadie and Mike got out. Because we know, this isn't even a spoiler at this point, because this already happened back in Halo 2, we know that there was some glassing going on of the African continent there. And I'm hoping they managed to get out in time. Sadie herself 
she kind of, I, I was going to talk about her last, but I can talk about her now because there's not much to share about her story uh, with regards to how she copes with things. Because the main way she copes with things is by being a dinosaur. I call this dinosaur mentality where you just kind of trudge forward regardless of everything. It's not denial. It's not like Tom was doing. It's instead a form of stubbornness. I've got to do this. Well, this is going on. I know that's going on, and that's why I've got to do this. Well, what about this? Well, I, I know that's over there, but I've got to do this. You don't understand. I need to get to my dad. I suppose I should bring up Kinsler. I'd rather not. I'm glad he got torn to bloody shreds. That's about all I have to say about him. But in the interest of analysis and rumination, I suppose I should mention that that is another way people cope. Uh, that is, of course, lust, going back to the Dante's Inferno thing. But his overall approach and style, his coping mechanism, is almost hysterical. Uh, opportunism is what I would probably call that. Oh, things are bad. I'm going to take. Now, his form of taking is disgusting and terrible. But this is the same general mentality that goes into looting when a terrible t catastrophe hits a city, for example. Oh, the rules don't apply anymore. Yoink. Same idea. Not a big fan of looters, by the way. I want to talk about two more, three more, excuse me, before I go on. Uh, Slots Lady, I didn't get her name. This is an interesting one, because this, obviously, you know, greed, but this is frustration, what that is. How many of you out there have something that you have tried to do for years and failed at? I have many things that I could attribute to that. And so I actually understand her mentality best of those. That's probably the closest to how I would react in that situation. Because, damn it, I have been doing this for so long. And I have been trying for so long. And I've been coming to this stupid casino for 40 years. You are going to give me back. You're going to give me my big win. And at that point, it's just about the gratification of knowing that she did it, knowing that she won, knowing that she got that money back, even when a frickin' brute has decided to attack her. No, she's holding her ground. Thank you. Oh, hmm, now she's dead. Yeah. I don't blame her, though. Really, I don't. You'll notice she is probably one of the least damaging of the various people. Tom nearly got them killed. Uh, Kinsler was a disgusting human being, and two people we'll mention in a bit here actually endangered us. But all she did was go after the thing and try to, you know, go after the ATM, excuse me, and try to rip the money out of it, because, damn it, she's going to have her satisfaction. Which leads me neatly into Jonas. Now, Jonas is gluttony. Duh. But what I find most interesting about his thing is that I have actually... So I've been in some pretty horrible stuff in my real life, as I've mentioned before. Um, I've never been in the middle of the end of the world yet, but, I mean, this is 2020. Who knows? <laughs> no, God. I don't have anything lumber, I don't have anything wooden to knock on. Knock on plastic? Um, Jonas's reaction is one that I have seen uh, people do. Uh, I'm saying this completely the wrong way. It feels the most grounded of the reactions, other than just straight panic, which is which obviously we just get from the crowds for the most part. Because what he does is he behaves as if everything is normal. Everything is completely ordinary. Would you like some food? Mm, this food's so good. Would you like another kebab? I'll give you two kebabs if you want to go. Have fun. Have some free food. Here you go. Kebab, anyone? Would you like a kebab? Hey, get out of the road. Oh, well, you don't want me to do that. I may have to hurt you. <laughs> His 
desire to not only cling to that normalcy, but also to try and share that normalcy with others. It's almost altruistic. It's not quite, but it's leaning in that direction on the axes. It, it, it's kind of leaning this way, and I really like how he is presented. He's also very jovial and very well acted. I mean, blah, 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 blah. But he was the most interesting one for me. He reminds me of uh, The Day After Tomorrow, I think is the name of that film. Oh, I can never think of the name of it. Hang on. There's a film. It's about a nuclear war scenario uh, set in uh, Topeka, Kansas, I think. <sighs> Maybe it's just The Day After. Uh, no, it's not Day After Tomorrow. That's the other one. See, that's the thing. I always get confused with the with the... the Super Storm film. Oh my god, what's it called? This is going to bug the crap out of me. Okay, that's it. Hang on. Uh, I can't type while talking. Please forgive me. But regardless, in this film that I am referencing right now, there is a scene where there's a woman. It's actually probably my favorite scene. The Day After. The Day After is the name of the film. I'm not sure I recommend that film. It's a great film, but it's a horrifying film. It is beautifully horrific. There's a wonderful scene in it, which I will share with you now, where they know the bombs have launched, which means they're dead. It's the same thing. How do you react? What do you do? The, the bombs are coming, and there's nothing you can do about it. What do you do? And there's this beautiful pit, bit where there's this woman, and she's, she's straightening the sheets and making the bed. And they're like, we need to go. And she's just, no, hang on, hang on, I'm almost done. And it's just that, it's that clinging, desperate clinging to normalcy. Because what's effectively happened is the brain is broken. Because she can't actually process what's going on. I mean, how can you, right? Only a crazy person could actually process such a thing. And so, from a normal mind, she just kind of says, okay, I'm just going to keep doing this. Would you like a kebab? Maybe you would like two kebabs. Because that's what we do, is we give out here, have, have a kebab. Brilliant stuff. Marshall is also interesting in his own right. Um, he is similar to Slot's Lady. Of course, he's wroth instead of greed. But the, the... You'll notice a lot of these follow a similar trend. Most of these are, now that things are really bad, they no longer have to hold back like they normally would. That's the common theme here, and I hope you're noticing that. Um, Ginsler no longer needs to not be a disgusting, despicable human being. Tom no longer needs to you know, pretend that he's anything other than what he is. Uh, Mike is, is free to pursue someone that he likes, even though he's just met her. Slot's lady is free to finally take the money that she feels she was always owned. Jonas is free to give out his food and enjoy it along with him. And, of course, Marshall is free to enact his vengeance upon the people who have slighted him because they were rude and they were dicks and, by golly, screw them. And, actually, I kind of get him, too. I'm not sure I would shoot people, but I'm just saying, if Laura Loaded walked up and ate my lunch, and I, I put Lore on the lunch, why would you eat my lunch, Laura Loaded? <laughs> You kind of get the mentality there. That demand of satisfaction is something there that he would otherwise never do, but, well, the world's ending, so screw it. Interesting to think on. Sorry, I didn't spend, mean to spend so much time on this, but like I said, it's one of the more interesting aspects of the story, in my opinion. 
I mentioned the open world. I meant to segue into this first. Please forgive me for my inconsistent order. One of the things I do think the open world does best, and one of the reasons why I don't want to eject the rookie from the narrative, even though I think he's a total non-character, far more than Master Chief ever was, is the fact that the open world thing beautifully sells the atmosphere of the piece. Because what we have... And this, this attributes to the pacing as well. I talk so much about pacing. In this case, the pacing is completely different. It doesn't do this thing. And this is great that I have this example right here. Because if you remember, I mentioned, uh, I think in Halo 3, the Halo 3 room, that this is almost always good pacing, but this is not the only type of pacing that is good. What this game does is this. And it stays low, and then it has like a bump. And then it has like a bump, and then it has like a bump, and then it has an escalation. So it's sta- the, the tone stays down almost the entire work. And the moving around the overworld section and the, the, the relative absence of encounters, the uh, relative lack of action, the, the, the atmosphere, the darkness, the fact that it's raining, the music, all of this contributes to this melancholy feel, this vibe, very, very myth feel, if I might be so bold. Of the, of the entire work. And that's why I think the rookie sections are mandatory. However, I do think they should probably be shrunk a little bit. Or filled out. One of the two. I know, I know. They were in a hurry. They were making this as a bonus game on top of another game. I do get it. But I think they should be able to shrunk it down, reduce their workload, or expanded it and just embraced it. Because if they'd shrunk it down, what we'd have had is, imagine if the overworld was effectively a third the size, roughly. So you still have the same theme, same music, same tone, still going around, still gathering gathering the missions. Um, The same general approach, but shrinking it would reduce a lot of the dead air, which unfortunately did not actually fill that vibe for me. Now, I know several people are going to disagree with this, and that's actually cool. Uh, obviously, if you disagree, you're more than welcome to do so, and frankly, I would like it if you did so, because disagreements are awesome, as long as you're willing to be a decent human being about it. A lot of people in chat, while we were streaming this, disagreed with me on this point as well. What I would rather, though, in the in Nana land, where we don't have to worry about t- timelines and budgets and deadlines, is I would rather they expanded it, add more, make more to do within the overworld, fill it out with events or concepts or something to actually accomplish, rather than just this sort of empty dead air that it was, my opinion. But I mentioned uh, the rookie. I, you'll notice I haven't really talked about the char- the main characters, and that's because they didn't work for me. And that's a damn shame, because they had a decent cast. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Nathan Fillion, as I'm sure most geeks are. But I also learned the like Trisha Helfer, which I remember, of course, most predominantly from uh, Mass Effect. And I feel like a lot of their scenes didn't nail the tone they needed to. I don't know if this is attributed to the kind of rushed thing that I've referenced like five times now with the fact that this was supposed to be just a mini-game before they get to the real game. Um, But I really feel like if they had spent more time polishing the dialogue, this would have worked a lot better. Because in my opinion, the scenes and the characters needed to be sillier, more serious, or both. As is, it fits that sort of weird in-between range where it's just kind of awkward for me. And so there's several individual cutscenes where I'm like, well, I should be grinning or laughing or smiling. I, I could feel the emotion I should be feeling, but I'm not feeling it. It's just, it doesn't nail the presentation. Again, I feel like a polishing pass would have been able to, to you know, fix that problem. More time, more effort, etc. So I didn't really buy into most of the cast. Uh, Mr. Reynolds himself was, of course, probably the most interesting character and the most well-presented because actor, plus the fact that he is, let's be honest, the main character of this game. But most of the others were just like, okay. And for the most part, I wasn't really buying into them. I couldn't tell you much about any of them other than Dutch, who did admittedly make me laugh twice, so I'll give you that one. 
thinking in my head. I've already I've already gone through everything that's on my notes. I don't know. I don't have much else to share here. Oh, one last thing, actually, very quickly. So, obviously, we know Halo Infinite is coming out at some distant future, and I wonder if Halo Infinite will be designed more like this game. O large open world, little specific hubs you can go to, that kind of an idea. I don't know. I think that Halo Infinite could be a good expansion on this concept. As I mentioned earlier, I think this is a good experiment. I just think it needs to go further. We'll see, I suppose, whenever Halo Infinite comes out. Do we even have a release date yet? I don't even know. Regardless, I do hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. As always, I will see you guys next time.